Let's start. Any any prayer requests for tonight? Yeah, I have one. For my brother, David. Yeah. Um, he's got cancer, but the big thing was last week his kidneys were failing, and he almost didn't make it, but uh, he's, his uh, wife just texted me that he is home. Um, so he's... Um, they haven't addressed the cancer, and he does not want to have any treatment for the cancer. So, uh, how old uh, is he? How old is he, Francis? Seventy-six on Halloween. Seventy-six. Yeah. And he was pretty bummed out because he spent his birthday in the hospital. God. <laughs> if, if that would help him spend the next year in in his house, tell him to be happy. God. Um, God. <laughs> I I give up any Halloween to. Yeah, well, yeah, he was so. But we went down to Fred and I went down to see him because my sister-in-law had said we needed to come down, and we went down, and he was in pretty bad. When we saw him at his house. He looked horrible. Oh wow! Wow. And she got him to the hospital. She said colon cancer. In just in the nick of time on the kidneys, and they got his kidneys functioning again. And the cancer is where? Uh, I think it's in the prostate, the lungs, and possibly oh, wow. 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 So, wow. Wow. And he's the one that his uh, daughter, husband died of COVID, that we were praying for that one time he actually died of COVID. So God. that just happened. So. Boy. Boy. Anyway, just remember him and Yeah, we will. I'm glad you asked. His name's David. Yeah, I got it. Boy, things are closing in. You know, a year and a half ago, COVID was an abstraction. It's it's at the door. It's in our kitchens, and when you know, it's it's just here. Um, boy, boy. It's a it's a strange world because the political disorders are so deep and so threatening. Um, it's as it, it really, I mean, really, it's like enemies are at the door. When it, there, there are times when I pick up, you know, we, I don't look at the news anymore. I mean, just, I, I, um, our, my homepage has been Fox. I don't trust the other networks, but I don't even look at that. I, I, when I do pass through it to, to go to other things like the weather or sports or something, I'm just struck at the, at the headlines because it reminds me of South American um, cultures that um, the way the judicial system is working, the way judges are working, all of it just reminds me of a of a culture that's that's become corrupted. Its roots. It's the sort of thing we've been hearing, you know, about cities or um, countries in South America, but it was other countries. Now it's us. It it just. The corruption is so present, so pervasive, um, and add COVID to that, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful, awful situation, it's an awful time for us. Okay, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The readings this morning, Doc, were to the love of... First one was from Revelation. Yeah. The, the numbers, sorry. The angels coming down and instructed not to 
harm anything until the people who'd been saved had their ark yeah. on their forehead. Your words, Lord, take us always from our life to yours um, to keep alive a sense of wonder and awe and um, some fear and gratitude that you are always present, always at work. There's something, there's some danger. Um, all of your words that um, in Revelations this morning that um, that some will be marked, that um, um, the chosen people have a certain number. It, um, I'm not sure we're supposed to read that as being fixed, but certainly symbolic. And all the other nations that you've called together, um, you have a plan. Um, everything you do protects our free will. Um, we can lose it all. We're not, we're not Calvinists. Um, we don't believe that things are just inevitable and um, and the, the, the choices we make don't matter. Um, you trust us with a free will, even at the risk of damnation. <laughs> Is there any other way to show the great honor you show us, the great trust you place in us? I ask a special grace for all of us, particularly those involved in this here, because people are going out on a limb to read these things and take the time they do. Let all that we read strengthen us in our faith. Give us the courage to do things that aren't easy. Um, we live in a culture in which um, a great value is placed on being proper, not offending, you know, doing things in the right way. The disciples didn't do that. They, they offended everywhere, and so did you. Give us the courage to speak up, not be afraid, to not do things seeking approval or hiding. Um, give us the courage to step out. Um, we know if we do, even if we go to a cross, we're in your arms. As you were, God, as you were in your father's when you died. Um, it's, an, it's an awful age, horrible age. Um, it's a time for saints. We can't let sainthood wait on our having the world the way we want. As a matter of fact, it's closer to truth to say that um, our sainthood comes from <laughs> being in a world that is very different from what we want. Strengthen us to take seriously your call to all of us to, to, to use the things that we've been given here. And I say that for myself especially because doing this stuff with all of you guys is a gift to me, a strength to me. It means I have to take this stuff seriously too. So strengthen us in our efforts, help us to live all that we're learning. Um, I ask a special blessing for those that we carry in our hearts, those with uh, medical issues or wounds or struggles, personal struggles um, in their faith, um, particularly, and I ask a special blessing on um, Francis's brother David. Um, surround him with your protection, but um, more importantly, pierce his heart, pierce it with your grace, 
um, whatever pain, whatever struggle in the midst of these, let it be a part of whatever pain he suffers medically. But let it be a grace. Help him to open to it and find in that grace um, a reaffirmation of his life and his faith. A trust in you. Whatever his difficulties, whatever his failures, um, um, that it be a moment of genuinely turning his life over to you if this is um, his end times. Be with him and particularly be with those who love him who can't do much for him medically right now. And I ask that um, Francis's heart be quieted. Um, let this be a, an occasion for her growing closer to you as well. We offer these prayers um, to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, four quartets, Bert Norton. Um, a couple of important things to just keep in mind when we do Elliot. One is, you know, because I've repeated it now a number of times that he's speaking to a non-Christian audience. He knows that. C.S. Lewis Chesterton knew it in Orthodoxy. They have entered a rationalistic world that was set in motion in the 19th century with the power that scientific discoveries had on so many people, the way it influences, the way they thought, their minds. Um, why turn to a god when you seem to have a greater control over nature because of sciences? So um, the great turn that took place in the 19th century um, had a, a real effect on everybody. But there was a small group of men and women, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, others, Charles Williams, um, who had keen enough minds to be able to see through what was going on with most of the people. C.S. Lewis came, I mean, uh, T.S. Eliot came a little bit later, but he belongs to that same modern tradition of men who are, who are apologists, who are defending Christianity at a time when it's under attack. So they're speaking to non-Christian, non-believers, skeptics, agnostics, disbelievers, and knowing that if they were to use the word Christ or bring Christ into their arguments, they'd lose an audience. Because most people would say, believe in Christ, take him as your savior, you're saved. And, you know, it's a very intellectual age. We value our intellects. So for somebody to just say, um, take Christ as your savior and everything's done, would be unthinkable, an embarrassment for lots of people. Because it, it wouldn't address one of the things they value most, which is their mind. Because what science has shown us, if nothing else, is that the mind is an extraordinary power. It can understand things, it can penetrate the secrets of nature, it can exercise some control over nature. Um, and what was begun with science clearly hasn't finished. I mean, we've only seen the beginning of it. And if that's the case, why in the world would anybody turn to God? You know, so these men saw that there was something wrong, that even with everything that science could do or everything that science could prove, there was something it didn't see. 
And these men, the, the response on the part of these men wasn't just believe in Christ. What they did was draw on their natural gifts of reason to show that within nature itself there, there are these sources of rationality. That, that we have so much to learn from nature and our own temporal world before we turn to God. And the, the arguments they made were extraordinary. So many of them turned lots of men off. The educated class turned against most of these men, T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and others, Chesterton. But in our case, in the case of T.S. Eliot, T.S. Eliot went on to write major works in, on, on poetry. He just happened to, to love poetry. He wrote some of the most important poetry in the 20th century. Um, intellectuals were taken by it until they discovered that he was Christian. He had converted. Bert Norton is his last great, great work. I mean, sorry, The Four Quartets. And it's in this book that he goes to truths uh, that don't deal explicitly with Christian themes, but that uncover a world that um, is in so many ways answering the skepticism, the denials of the modern mind, the modern intellectual. So, was that clear? That was... Yes? Clear? Barb, was that clear? Is that okay? Do you have a que any questions here? No, I'm working with it. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Francis, did we lose Fred? Did I lose him? Oh, he, he, had, he had a message he had to take care of. So okay. He's, he's in the room, but he had to go take care of something. Okay. So. <laughs> Okay, here's the first of the four quartets. That's the first thing to know. That's just general bracket. And the second is, it's absolutely crucial that everybody see that the, the um, mode that's assumed here in the poem is music. That the analog for this, these four works is music. The pieces are called the four quartets. So it's absolutely crucial that however we look at these poems, we see them in terms of music. There's a musical center. They imply a musical center. Um, those of you who remember Boethius and his image of the wheel, remember the wheel with the still point at the center? Um, that still point is probably the major image of the four quartets. Eliot refers to it several times. I think it's important here to see that that still point is music. It can't be otherwise. If that still point represents God's order, his heaven, there's no way to see that as except in, in terms of poetry. A perfect harmony, a perfect beauty, a perfect harmony. So implied in everything in the world, everything in the world for Eliot is this still point. No matter, It can be mud. It can be awful things. It can be a war in which people are killed. At the center of all these things is a still point um, that implies a music, a harmony. It's Boethian, that God is always at work bringing good out of whatever we do. Okay, so hold on to Boethius, hold on to that still point. Um, it's probably, no, it is the, one, of, one of the major governing themes of the whole of the quartets, okay? Every one of the, the four quartets has a name that refers to an actual historical place. 
It has this historical reality and a past. So every one of these poems is rooted in history. It has a historical past. So even while in its Boethian way it, it implies the importance of the present moment, it implies a past that's always be carried forward. What Eliot is showing us is exactly what the ancient poet showed us. The, the true poet is always carrying the past forward, never letting it stay there. That is so crucial to our work, never letting it stay there. The effort of the poet is to bring that past into the present and redeem it. That working with God, some good is being given to it. We can grow up with an abusive father, a bad father, a bad mother. We can go up with an alcoholic. Uh, doesn't matter. Whatever our past is. I mean, I just it sickens me to watch people want to tear down statues of our, you know, of our past here in America. <coughs> the puritanism, the self-righteous, vicious arrogance of, of those actions really troubles me. Our call is to carry the past forward and redeem it. It's to honor the past and love it, not trash it or violate it. Um, that's against, against our Christian call. So every one of the places, Bert Norton, East Coker, all of them are rooted in an actual place in history, has a history of its own, and Eliot is assuming that in what he's doing with each of the quartets. So, um, and to, to, to go back to my initial point with him, the still point, um, the, the, the still point, if, if you remember Boethius, the importance of that still point, it's the closer you get to that, the closer you are to God. The closer you are to Him, the more you're situated in an ongoing present. We can't get trapped in the past. It's wounds, it's hurts, and we can't escape the present pains by wishing for a future. The place in which we are meant to carry on our work is this present moment. Now. 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 Okay. So, let me start with just those opening comments. Any questions on those, what I'm saying, and their relevance to the poems? They're really crucial to what Elliot's is doing. So, the musical center... The still point, um, the bearing the burdens of the past and bringing them into the present, and transforming them in poetry, in love. To, to bring what we do into harmony with, God, <laughs> with God's poetry, if I can put it that way. Okay. And I hope by that you know that I'm just not talking about poetry the way most people do it. I'm saying that any, there's nothing that Christ did or the Father or the Spirit that isn't in poetry. Because it's got to, it's got to express a perfect harmony and music and order. A, perf, a beauty, a purpose. Okay? Bert Norton was written in 1936. The first, the first of the quartets. And notice how he will announce one of the major themes of the quartets in the opening lines. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If there's nothing more than what we have in time, then we can't be redeemed. It will 
it will require something from outside of time entering time. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. It's a world of pure thought. It's not reality. It's not existing things. It's a world of abstractions, thoughts. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. And now there are these images that take us back to the garden because you know from the beginning that it's one of the major tropes of the lyric poem, the garden. That lost Eden that all of us long for. It's in our memories. All of us carry it. This longing for something we've lost that we want to recover again. Footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden. My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden, shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them. Round the corner, through the first gate, into our first world, shall we follow the deception of the thrush into our first world? There they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves and the autumn heat, through the vibrant air, and the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery, and the unseen eye beam crossed, for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting. So we moved, and they, in a formal pattern, along the empty alley into the box circle to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged, and the pool was filled with water out of sunlight, and the lotus rose quietly, quietly. The surface glittered out of heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, where the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. Um, it's just impossible to miss the, um, the overlay between our world and our attempt to have Eden. Suburbia is America's attempt to make Eden real here. And we all know that in some ways it's, it's, a, it's, it's fraught with failures. We can't recover the garden that way. We can't build it, we can't manufacture it, but the drain pool is, um, is an image of that lost world, but it's dry, it's empty. Um, and one of the beautiful lines just to hold on to, remember, the bird called in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery and the unseen eye beam crossed for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. Whatever you think about the road, the garden, as Elliot is trying to capture it to help us have an image of it, of something that we've lost, everything that existed then is not as it exists now because we know that we live in a world that's um, dichotomized. We divided it. Subject, object, I, they, he, she. 
We tend to objectify other people, make them objects of our mind, and we've lost that sense of oneness or union with them. But in the garden, that was not so. Everything in the garden had intentionality. You couldn't look at a rose without feeling the rose was being looked at. Is that clear? It's like the rose has a life of its own, that, that there's a beholding that share, or a communion would be maybe a better word, between the self of the rose and the self of the person. There was only a beholding, a sharing, and we've lost that. And one of the things I've been arguing since we began together is the poets are the ones very often who attempt to recover that sense of beholding. Remember the scene in Faulkner's The Bear when Ike and the bear looked at each other. The bear was not a trophy to Ike. Remember he gave up the gun and the compass and the watch. And the bear didn't run away. Just for a moment, the two beholders. It's not a predator and a, and a prey, a hunter and a hunted. It's a boy and a bear beholding each other. Just for a moment. Um, so they have something special that the hunters didn't have. And it was only because of the teaching that Sam Fathers did that, that I could have that experience. So, so Elliot is showing um, these people looking into the pool with images behind them that suggest um, the rose, or I mean the, the garden, Eden, and a way of living that's been lost. And remember, time past and time future, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. We tend to live in what might have been if I had only done this, or if I only do this in the future, or I'm sorry I did this, or I regret that I did that. Shame, guilt, fantasizing. We are asked to live fully in the present with whatever crosses or burdens they bear. Because remember, remember that one of the central lines of the opening of Burt Norton. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. So that's the opening of the four quartets. Let me stop and we'll go to Chesterton. Any, any responses, any comments to the opening of Burt okay. Norton? Good, you go. I'm so glad. Well, you may not be. You know. No, I always am. It okay. does. It does not matter. God, I'm always. Whatever the questions, God. Correct. So it's not really a question, but we're talking about not living in the present. But surely most of us live in the present at some point. I mean, not that we do it every day, all day. But when you talked about the rose, a true appreciation of God creation isn't that what he says is lost don't we do that I mean is it completely lost or, no, I, or don't we do it sometimes aren't we capable of it at times no I no you're I mean you're absolutely right Barbara um, I think the harder thing is just in terms of the opening you know for if we stay with the opening um, if we just stay with the light because there are going to be some painful passages all the way through. It's going to be there's going to be some King Lear-like passages. It's going to imply some real sorrow. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future. 
time future contained in time past. If all times are turned, you know, we either live in the future or we live. Um, if we take seriously the lines, go, 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 humankind cannot bear very much reality, time past, time future, what might have been, what is, I think we can look aesthetically at beautiful objects and enter a present. No question. The, the serious question is, can we be with Christ in the present bearing a cross? You know, okay. think, think about the disciples. Christ sent them off knowing they were going to be crucified. You know, some of his last lines, a day will come when, I can't remember how he put it, but you, you will have to gird up your loins and, you know, bear your cross. And um, think about the two women with Christ, the one who was washing him with oil with her hair, Mary and Martha, and the women at the cross or at the tomb. Peter running. Um, yeah, we can look aesthetically at a flower, and and be trans, fully. I don't know. Put entering into the moment of the present. Yes. But if our call is to Christ, can we um, love uh, um, the beauty of a of a of a flower, and still be with Christ on a cross? You know, to, 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 to try to take this to a poem, if you remember the wind hover when Hopkins is describing the wind hover, remember he's out on a morning walk and he describes the wind hover and then um, buckling, the, the beauty that the broke from thee a million times told lovelier, more dangerous, because he knew that the danger would be to get so caught up in the beauty of that moment that he'd forget Christ. But he goes on in, his, um, in the sestet to say, no wonder of it, you know, Farmers plow the earth, fires burn out, the crucifixion is everywhere. Um, beauty, truth, beauty, truth, oneness, goodness are all transcendental. In any way in which any of us participate in those experiences, we are in that present. So yeah, we can, but I, but I, I think the, the weight of this is time present, time past, that so often our mind is in what happened or what did happen or grief or sorrows or regrets or dreams or wishes or... But living now with God, doing His will, I, I just think that's a, that's a... That's hard, I think, for all of us. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm speaking too much for myself on this one. Well... That's a side of what you were talking about that I wasn't catching. So I'm good. Yeah, because just you know, just it's. I mean, just it's the, what he's doing is pretty. Time present, time past are both perhaps present and time future. There's a reference point to the past. There's a reference point to the future. If all time is eternally present, because they're always going to a past or future, all time is unredeemable. We'll never get out of it. Uh, my words echoed thus in your mind. We've taken back to an image that reminds them of the rose garden. So we're, we're going back to the past, but it's very much in the present. Um, we get an image of people looking into the pool in our time, but they're carrying a past with them. They get images of our parents, you know, but we're looking a dry pool, dry concrete, brown edge. The pool was filled with water out of sunlight. Um... And they were behind us, reflected in the pool. Then a cloud passed, and the pool was empty. 
you know, we have these moments of clarity or assurance of the longing for that world we lost. Um, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. I think I'm going to speak for myself here, so just it's only the three of us, and is that I think for a lot of us, we're busy with the past a lot, engage with it. We're hoping, looking to the future, but living completely in the present is not an easy thing to do. <coughs> particularly, particularly if the call of it is pick up your cross or put it this way, pick up your sins, these awful things you carry from the past, pick up those sins and die to them, come to me here. I think the beauty of it here is that Eliot's giving it to us in poetry, you know, in these extraordinary images and this action that's taking place. All of it, which, all of it set to music or implying a music center, you know, or, or an or an undertone. Fred, did you have something? I do. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, what I what I get out of this first part of the reading, uh, even when we did it the time before, was it reminds me of what I see as an ongoing conflict that we deal with every day. But I've gone on walks in nature, and you you try to put everything aside while the walk. You know whether it's you know a walk in the a walk in the park or the Grand Canyon, you know whatever it might be, and and there's a communion there that you try to reach out for that you. You know, with it, it's the wind blowing, the trees rustling, the birds flying. You're, you're looking down in the Grand Canyon, and there's birds flying, and you, you tr you're trying to capture that moment as something truly incredible. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's something going on in your subconscious, and it says, "Yeah, that's beautiful, but you know, you got a lot of work to do when you get back." Or, um, you know, you're thinking. You know, man, I, I, you know, I get, I get this deadline coming up in the future. You know, next yeah. next week or yeah. something. Yeah. And it just, it just ruins the moment. <laughs> and to me, what, what, what I feel here, Elliot's kind of describing is that, you know, that struggle every day that we try to be in the moment, and then something tries to drag us away. And I, I feel like there's, there's a great loss there. That if we could ever just stay in that moment for an extended period of time, maybe we would see a a unique communion, maybe even a glimpse of the still point that you know we just don't seem to be able to hang on to for very long. Yeah. But I don't know if that's really what he's getting at or not, or if that's just me making stuff up. No, I think I mean my own sense, my own response. To what you're describing is it's right on. It's the only thing that I would add um, is that 
Yeah, and it's implied in what you're saying is that um, that that for us as fallen creatures, because we're in a fall and and we're um, there's an um, an action of atonement going on, you know, with Christ in our world. That um, there's a danger in aesthetic moments because they're real and good, exactly as you describe them. They they keep alive a sense of wonder and gratitude. And delight you know, in us. Somewhere in there, there's a cross, and I don't think it's just because a horn goes off in the background. Why, you know, or we're looking into the Grand Canyon, or you know, or bills, or you know, whatever, you know, whatever. It's that somehow at the center of our life, and I and I think that this is my own personal belief now. Right now, I I think Eliot's getting this because of that line: "Humankind cannot bear very much reality." That there's an extraordinary beauty there present for anybody who can live in the moment the way you described it. But there's all, always for us in a fallen world a cross. Always. And how to hold on to both of those at the same time is you know, humankind cannot bear very much reality. He'll come back to this again and again. But, um, but yeah, no, I think both you and Barbara are right on in your descriptions. They're, they're perfect and right to the point. I just think at the same time, this whole thing of, you know, um, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Um, a redemption is going on in the present moment involving a cross. Um, is what we're doing really expressive of dying to ourselves? Um, being with Christ on a cross dying to ourselves so that whatever we're doing is with him whether it involves goodness or beauty whatever you know whatever the oneness is i think that's i mean this sort of amazing because all the comments you guys are making are taking us right to the center right to the center of the quartets yeah well to me i see chesterson kind of kicking in here too because he talks about the sense of don't lose the sense of a miracle and I guess you know you can be walking in a field of sunflowers, and and you and you notice that they're completely open and facing the sun, and it's like it's a miracle, you know. <laughs> and I won't bring the Fibonacci numbers in, and out, you know. Um, and, and and you think to yourself, man, if only I could open up like that to to God, and just give myself up wholly and completely. And uh, it's humbling. It, it, it truly, it truly is humbling. Yes. But it, that's what Chesterton's kind of talking about too. Is that if you if you can't keep that sense of miracle, that no, the sun doesn't come up every day. It's just that God decided to let the sun come up one more day. You know. It's, yeah. It's a whole different way of looking at things. Yeah, yeah, you don't take it for granted. Yeah, no, yeah. Okay, let's go to, I want to offer a couple of thoughts to get to Chesterton and do this quickly because they're, they're a far distant from Chesterton, but let me, let me offer them anyway. It's a way of trying to pull a lot of the work that we've done together. <laughs> this may seem a stretch, and I'm wondering if I should do that now that I'm, now that we're, dealing with Eliot and what he just gave us in the Burt Norton. In Plato's Republic, 
remember ages ago when we first talked about it. The book begins with a group of people surrounding Socrates and asking him to define justice, say what justice is. There are two brothers who play a major role in what happens from that point on through the whole of the Republic. And you know from my treatment of it that I, I place the Republic with the Iliad, the Odyssey, and Genesis and Exodus. That it's one of the founding works of Western civilization. It, it is the natural backbone to the works of Revelation. It goes with the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it actually grew out of the Iliad and Odyssey, is my belief. He, he couldn't have done what he did without Homer. In that work, in the opening, um, one of the brothers, uh, Thrasymachus, takes the position that justice is the, the stronger over the weaker. Whatever the majority is, if a, if a man's a tyrant and he has an army and he determines that something is just, that's just. So justice is the stronger over the weaker. The modern term for that by, by people in law school would be conventional law man-made law, that men make up laws. So it's convention, it's man-made. But the stronger will determine to... By the way, this is so much, so much at the heart of the critical race theory. Because there are people in law school who maintain that one of the problems in America is that the laws have been written by, by white privilege. They're all corrupt. They reflect a majority of power. So they're, all they're doing in one sense is illustrating Plato's thesis. Thrasymachus says justice is the, the stronger over the weaker. Whatever the stronger determines just will be just. Okay? His brother, who is inherently a little bit more questioning and humbler, says that it isn't, and he makes an argument, and finally Socrates has to straighten out. And what, what Socrates does over the course of probably half of that book he showed that there's an order to the soul, there's a, that there's a rational faculty. We've all seen this. You've seen me put it on the board with a circle with the three sub-circles inside. That the soul has three, two faculties, a rational faculty and an appetitive faculty. Just hold on, two circles. A rational faculty on top, an appetitive faculty in the bottom. That constitutes that circle. But the lower circle consists of two faculties, the appetitive. The appetitive consists of what Plato and the Greeks would have called thumus, or anger. It's the appetites, the desires directed towards transcendent goods, beauty, truth, goodness, oneness, transcendent truths, that you grasp with the mind. The lower appetites are those appetites directed towards bodily pleasures, food, drink, sex, material, material goods, all those things that are perishable. This is basic to Boethius, so he, he knew it by heart. Is everybody clear in that? Socrates says, and, he, and he, he gives evidence to support it, there are these two faculties, the rational and the impetitive. The impetitive is divided into two, the upper desires that long for eternal or transcendent goods and the lower appetites directed towards physical bodily things. He said the proper ordering of the soul, what makes the soul good or just, is the ability of the rational to rule the appetitive, the lower 
appetites directed towards physical goods through that middle element, thimos, the desires for transcendent goods. Because it's the desire for transcendent goods that can help control the, the baser desires by the way reason uses them. When the soul is properly ordered, it becomes just. It takes its place in a larger order of good. So justice is not man-made, it's natural. And Plato makes the claim that when a regime forms itself, structures itself around the proper ordering of the soul, the regime becomes a good regime. When it doesn't, and it lets the middle or the lower appetites take over and reason serves them, then a regime becomes oppressive, tyrannical. It becomes an oligarchy or a tyranny or... Is everybody following? Is this... I don't have diagrams and you, you know how much I depend on those, but is everybody following? So Plato, Socrates went on in that dialogue to say one of the most important things that goes on for any person or any regime is education because it's important that a person be educated to order his own soul. And the struggle, as, as Socrates outlines it, is to make a man both brave so that he can overcome problems and gentle. If he goes to either extreme, he'll become disordered, he'll become unjust. So if, you, if, you, if in the education you focus too much on the physical developments, you'll produce a jock, a mindless brute. Um, a, a, what Eliot and, and C.S. Lewis called a trousered ape. A trousered ape, a, a dressed up, you can be a woman. A dressed up, um, find another word besides ape. Um, or at the other extreme, a, a man can become effeminate. He can become too soft. So the two things were to help man um, get on a playing field where he would learn courage, but he would also um, be given music so he could learn gentleness. But if, if either extreme took over, he would either become physically violent or effeminate, too soft. The difficulty facing education was to bring both of those things together. And Chesterton's playing on that, and Chesterton is saying very explicitly, it's not a balance. You're not bringing those things. You have to be able to go to both of those. What Christ did was take it even farther. Because he, he had to be brave enough to go to a cross to die to himself, to pay for our sins and say, we're not going to undo our sins. None of us. None of us will undo our sins unless we die. That's from him. If we don't die, we, we still leave sins uncovered. We have to die to ourselves. We have to be brave enough to do that and gentle enough to do it in both directions. And Chesterton calls that for full board. We have to do both of those things to their extremes. Otherwise, we won't have what it takes to go to a cross. So what Plato was doing um, it was in some ways um, in harmony with what um, the Old Testament was presenting because the, the, the highest ideal of the Old Testament, you know, was a just man. The just man. Uh, there, there are those over and over and over again, the Psalms and the, and the readings keep talking about the just man, and there's that one beautiful 
I think it's in, uh, it's not the Psalms, but the, um, it's the other writings, the, what's the writings? Help me out, Doc. Mm-hmm. Where they want to condemn the just man and crucify him to show, um, I think Plato may have got it, his insight from Proverbs, from Proverbs. So that was the ancient world, to bring those two things together. Now hold on to that because Chesterton's going to, so much of what he does implies both of those. Christ came into the world, it's like he entered Plato's cave. Remember, for Plato, there's nobody entering into the cave, it's people are trapped there. He comes into the cave, he brings a love that men do not deserve. So he asked people to continue to work for justice, but he also asked that they bring to their efforts to be just a love that people don't deserve. So in the one instance, you've got the old world that that was based on matters of desert, what's owed or deserved. And in Christianity, you've got a love that's beyond reckoning, way beyond what anybody deserves. And the whole challenge facing man up to that point was bringing those two things together. How do we work for justice and bring to the justice a self-sacrificing love? In chapter 6 in Chesterton's... Well, let me stop. Is that... Any questions about that? I know that's old stuff for you guys, but it's it's part of the background that I think Chesterton's drawing on here. In chapter 6, called Paradoxes of Christianity, in his own way, he's not going back to philosophy, he's a journalist, but what he's doing is, is showing the tremendous sources of rationality in nature itself, that if we just look at, around us at what's going on, we see that there are these extraordinary resources and everywhere around he's finding that people use their reason in ways that show they're blind to them and he's opening them up. In paradoxes he's showing that um, things that seem to contradict each other actually should be resolved and it's only when we resolve them, bring them together that will be where Christ is. Um, I don't want to go over paradoxes again unless anybody else, unless somebody wants to go back or has any questions about them. Um, I'll take one because I just, to me, it's, it's, um, it's one of the, I think it's one of the best. Um, um, remember he says that, um, one of the problems with the collapse of Christendom is that what used to be united to form a whole, all of the Christian virtues, faith, hope, and charity, once Christendom cracked, once the shipwreck took place, the virtues were separated out and they go, they go about doing harm. So that modesty was never meant to be, modesty was meant to be a correction for arrogance. But now Christians have become modest because they're um, too modest, overly modest, and it's made them resign, give in to lack of courage in dealing with things. Modesty should have been a corrective corrective of ambition. Um, It should sit next to, it should be accompany convictions. 
people should go out and have convictions and stand up for them, but they should bring a spirit of humility to what they do. Separate those things and you've got problems. You've got a person being too modest and not doing anything or arrogant and knocking people over. He gives the example of courage. Um, pagans declared that virtue was a, in a balance. Christianity declared it was a conflict. The collision of the two passions apparently opposite. Of course they were not really inconsistent, but they were such that it, um, it was hard to hold simultaneously. Let, let us follow for a moment the clue of the martyr and the suicide. Take the case of courage. No qualities ever so much addled the brains entangled the de definitions of merely rational sages. Courage is almost a contradiction in term. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same will save it. It is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It's a piece of everyday advice for sailors and mountaineers. This paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quite earthly or quite brutal courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk, risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping with an inch of his life. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward, and he will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide. So in this chapter, he, um, in, a, in a wonderful common sense way, he goes through a number of the, of the virtues to show how important it is to bring them together full board. Um, so that red is red and white is white and they don't combine into a balance to make a pink because a pink will will uh, mediate against both of them. He gave that wonderful example, I think it's in this chapter, of the lion and the sheep. Do you remember? When a lion lies down with a lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. That's Tolstoy. It's a criticism of Tolstoy who brought that sort of spiritual pacifism to his writing. But that's brutal annexation imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. That's probably the part, that's part of the problem, I think, with socialism. I mean, he's, he'll get to that directly shortly. But in wanting to make everything nice, you actually undermine the harsher virtues. Christ was severe, often severe, often severe, very severe. You can... So if you take the lamb and the and the lion image, if you if you cut into the lamb and so that you make the lion lamb-like, and take away that severity, you're not you're not resolving both. You're taking one into the other; it gets absorbed. It's an, it's annexed. It's brutal annexation and imperialism. I thought that was a beautiful example. Simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is, can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his royal ferocity? That is the problem the church attempted. That's the miracle she achieved. So you've got St. Francis on the one hand, and St. Joan, a warrior, on the other. If you take away, and particularly in our age, because nobody in our age likes anger. They think anger is bad. You take St. Joan away and we're going to have a, a country of pacifists, the, the government's going to come totalitarian when that happens. The government being government, it will take over. The problem is how do you hold on to both? Do we have a, I'm sorry, Mark is not here. Do we have a pope who has the courage to take a stand and not move? And the, 
the gentleness in spirit with which to do that. Because if we go off either side, um, the cost will be great. That'll be true for the Pope. It'll be true for the bishops. It'll be true for the priests. It'll be true for us. And we are supposed to be, we are supposed to be priest, prophet, kings. So he's just using common sense to, to show that the church, the church has done something amazing in what it did, even though at this point he's, he is not yet converted. Let me stop here. I want to turn to the eternal revolution. Any, any comments to this point? I want to see if we can't get through eternal revolution and start romance of orthodoxy. Okay. Um, chapter 7, Eternal Revolution. The following propositions have been urged. And notice how the opening of 7 is a series of statements all expressing paradoxes. He's, he's taking what seem to be contradictions and showing that they've... Pardon me, it's because I'm getting warm. Hmm? No, I think I'm okay, though. You okay? No, you're not. Catch the wine. Um, let me start with that. Eternal revolutions. The following propositions have been urged. First, that some faith in our life is required even to improve it. Second, that some dissatisfaction with things as they are is necessary, even if ordered to be satisfied. We have to feel that something's wrong, that there's something we can do to be satisfied. That's part of our condition. Third, that to have this necessary content and necessary discontent, it's not sufficient to have the obvious equilibrium of the Stoic. The answer of the Stoic was balance. Keep this, that's a Stoic position. Keep your emotions, your mind, and balance in check. And Chesterton had been saying, no, that's a pagan notion. A Christian following Christ has got to be full board both ways. For mere resignation has neither the gigantic levity of pleasure nor the superb intolerance of pain. There's a vital objection to the advice merely to grin and bear it. The objection is that if you merely bear it, you do not grin. Greek heroes do not grin, but gargoyles do, because they are Christian. That's why he's saying the medieval cathedrals are full of them. By the way, go back to Dante's um, hell. Just for a moment, go back to Dante's hell. Remember, the, out, within the circle of limbo, the very first circle of hell was the virtuous pagans. It would, nobody, none of the pagans were, none of them were being punished, because they didn't sin. They were virtuous men. They were really good men. But they all live by conventions. They live in a dim light. That, that is because they didn't know the extraordinary joy of faith, hope, and charity. Because with faith, hope, and charity, if you're living with God, you know that you're out, you're, we're called, we're offered these gifts that should, should give us this extraordinary joy, extraordinary hope, hope when there's no reason to hope, faith when there's no reason for having faith, loving when there's no reason. That's Christ. 
All of those gifts are offered to elevate us above our natural condition because in our natural condition, since it's one of decay, we're always going to lose. Things, things are going to die. We're going to lose things. That's the natural condition. When a Christian is pleased, he is frightfully pleased. His pleasure is frightful. Christ's prophecy, the whole of Gothic architecture in that hour when nervous and respectable people, just like respectable Christians today, is what he's saying. When nervous and respectable people objected to the shouting of the gutter snipes of Jerusalem, it was the respectable people who found fault with Christ all the time. They were being good. They were following the laws. He said if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Under the impulse of his spirit arose like a clamorous chorus. The facades of the medieval cathedrals thronged with shouting faces and open mouths. The prophecy has fulfilled itself. The very stones cry out. So, um, he says, if these things be conceded, the arguments that he made in the paradoxes, we may take up where we left off, he said, dealing with the old man, what he calls the old, that is the natural man. All of us in our natural condition. Remember, according to the natural, this is Chesterton. The natural man has all these gifts. There's an awful lot we can do with our natural powers. Some satisfaction is needed even to make things better. But what do we mean by making things better? That's the question now we're faced in the eternal revolution. What do you to make what do you do to make things better? Now at this point I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do I hope this works. I don't know because I'm really sorry Mark's not here. I know Chesterton's not easy for most of us. Um, but the question he's asking here is how do we make things better? And um, he, he says, we can't do a number of things. And when he lists them, what he's doing is taking on all those modern philosophies that hold themselves up as answering all our problems. So on the opening pages of chapter 7, he says lots of people turn to nature, but nature can't give us the answer because in nature there's no superiority in, or inferiority. To talk about, let's, I mean, let's take evolution, say the, 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 the survival of the fittest. Chesterton makes the point that you can't talk about the survival of the fittest or some animals being superior or inferior unless you have a standard of either one. Nature doesn't give it, nature itself does not. Nature itself is likely to, creatures in nature is likely to kill or eat each other. They, they have no standards. They just do what they do. Um, he said, so we can't turn to nature for an answer to our question. He says, some fall back simply on the clock. They talk as if mere passage through time brought some superiority so that even a man of the first mental caliber carelessly uses the phrase that human mortality is never up to date. How can anything be up to date? A date has no character. What's the problem with turning to time? Um, what's the problem with turning to time for an answer on how we, this um, eternal revolution, how are we going to make things better in our world or, or in ourselves? How are we going to make things better in ourselves or each other in a marriage? How do we help each other grow better? What do we do?
Because we already know from the earlier chapters that we can enable, if we just if we pity people because of their problems and leave them alone, they'll stagnate. They'll just stay where they are. Um, we can't beat them up. What do we do? So the question he's facing now is, how do we make things better? We can't turn to nature. We can't turn to time. What's the problem with turning to time? Anybody? I'm going to be putting these things on you guys now. This is the list. Time, doing nothing, evolution, all these things are, are the ideas, the philosophies, which people use to explain how they're going to how they look at the world and very often some notion of progress that we're all progressing in some way even if they can't name it but why is time itself inadequate anybody try to make sense of this Barbara well, the only thing that comes to my mind is that time doesn't change an objective moral standard. Um, our world seems to think it does, but if we are true to not only what we've been taught from Christ, but from what is deep within us, that says things are right or wrong, the time doesn't matter. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't make it less egregious to kill somebody or to hurt somebody or right. to say something bad about somebody. So time is not a remedy. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, it's not going to be more true on Thursday than it was on Monday when it happened or, you know, another... Fred, do you have a thought on this? I'm just going to run through this list and ask you guys, or or, or Francis, um, if you have a thought on why time can't give it to us. I don't think I could have said it any better. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was a good answer. Yeah. Oh, I better quit now. <laughs> no, you better stop that. You better stop that. I know, I know, I know. It's a, it's a good thing we're not in a room together, Barbara. I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> you you have trouble with the other leg right now. <laughs> Francis, you have any thoughts? Anything to add? Or that was good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did too. Um, what about the notion of progress? Because lots of, or evolution, take either one of them. As a philosophy of life, I mean, there are lots of people who hold in evolution. There are lots of people who hold in progress. Um, what do we say about either of those with respect to making things better? Francis, are you there? I see you. I see your, I see your right ear. <laughs> Well, I guess progress, I guess you can look at, you know, have we really, with all the modern technology and everything, 
have we, with progressing like that, have we really lost so much other things, like with the, especially right now with the, what's going on, and like even with doing this, we've lost that human contact with people. We've progressed in the sense of technology and things like that, but we've lost that that touch, that personal uh, being with people and and, and everything. Um, so sometimes progress is good. Sometimes it is not, and it's not the answer mm-hmm. to fix our problems. Yeah, yeah. Fred, you have anything to add? Thought to that? No, I, I I think that's good. I mean, you can you can look at progress and say, okay, well, we've progressed a lot over the years. We can just kill more people quick, more quickly than we could before, but it's still the wrong thing to do. Yeah, you know? yeah, yes, yeah. And they're, and they're all relative. I mean, they're constantly changing. I mean, you, if you're going to make things better, you have to work towards something that never changes. Yeah. How do, otherwise, how do you measure your progress? Right. Yeah, that's exactly his argument. I mean, those those are exactly the terms. In order for progress to be real, there has to be a fixed goal, a fixed aim. If it's constantly changing, you're never progressing. You, you, you can be going up one path and turning, and you don't know where you're going. So, and very often, as we know over, or over history, the ideal of progress does change. Um, Francis said it. I mean, it's constantly changing, and so... Um, by the way, I, I mean, this is... this. Sorry? Go ahead. I think that's why you like the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I mean, that's what I was going to say right now. It, I, I hope everybody's clear on what's happening, because there's only one thing fixed, as Chester to define... He doesn't say this, but, but he does say that for real change to take place, there has to be a fixed... There has to be a dogma, a fixed end. Because if, if it keeps changing, it's like a target... If, you, if the target keeps changing, what are you hitting? Where are you going? What are you aiming at? So the ideal of progress has to be fixed because if it keeps changing, people will change and they'll never get anywhere. What about evolution? What's the difficulty with evolution? When you say evolution, you're defining natural evolution? Well, as as mo- uh, you, c- I mean, however you want to do it, Fred. The take the popular notion of evolution or the scientific notion, whichever I'm, one. I'm just trying to distinguish evolution from progress. I mean, so I look at evolution. In my mind, I guess it's it's a there's there's a natural evolution that occurs in in the world, and that. That evolution, you know, once again, isn't tied to anything that is truly absolute. In fact, it, it lends itself. If, if you don't have that, it, it, it's actually the antagonist. The antagonist in the sense that as you try to, um, you know, encompass or, or get your arms around what has evolved over time, uh, you can become very distracted. You can become um, 
oriented in the wrong direction unless you have that fundamental truth that is never changing. So right. all of these things to me, time, evolution, progress, they all have the same fundamental problem. And that's that they they aren't measurable uh, to this in a sense of making becoming closer to where you need to be if you don't have something guiding you yeah. in the right direction. Yeah. If things are always changing, to what do you direct yourself? He says, this is I don't, halfway through, I mean, we don't have the same page number, so I'm sorry for that, but he said, this, therefore, is our first requirement about the ideal towards which progress is directed. It must be fixed. A strict rule is not only necessary for ruling, it's also necessary for rebelling. If you don't have a reason for rebelling, why would you rebel? There has to be something important enough to give your life to. Um, the following page from that quote I just read, he says, Thus we may say that a permanent ideal is as necessary to the innovator as to the conservative. Um, I, I think I probably passed that thing on the post. I loved it. Um, maybe not. Maybe I, I hope I can get it. Um, um, yeah, I'll come to it. Um, he says, thus we may say that a permanent ideal is as necessary to the innovator as to the conservative. It is necessary whether we wish the king's order to be promptly executed or whether we only wish the king to be promptly executed. The guillotine has many sins, but to do it justice, there is nothing evolutionary about it. The favorite evolutionary argument finds its best answer in the axe. The evolutionist says, where do you draw the line? How does he know? I mean, if, if things are evolving and it's a blind process, how can you even talk about it? You, you can't understand it. You may pretend that you do and you don't. Where do you draw the line? The revolutionist answers, I draw it here, exactly between your head and your body. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, um, I mean it's just, that's, that's why God has to be the still point, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, we, we, you know, we used it before, you look at a wheel turning and you look at the center of that right. wheel and that position has to be fixed. It has to be still. Otherwise the, the, the whole concept of a wheel fails. Right. Because you know, you're not going to be able to control the cart because the rotation of the wheel is going to be constantly changing. Right. God is constantly changing. <laughs> we have no chance. Right. Right. There must be at any given moment an abstract right or wrong um, if any blows to be struck, there must be something eternal if there's to be anything sudden. Therefore, for all intelligible human purposes, for altering things or for keeping things as they are, for founding a system forever as in China, or for altering it very, every month in the early French Revolution, it's equally necessary that the vision should be a fixed vision. That's our first requirement. It's clear that no political activity can be encouraged by saying that progress is natural and inevitable. That's not a reason for being active, but rather a reason for being lazy. If it's inevitable, why do anything? That's, that's indirectly a criticism of Calvin. If you're already saved, what's there to bother about? At the, what he's arguing is at the heart of Catholicism and this notion of romance and adventure. There's a danger. We could lose something like the fairy tales. 
at any moment with bad choices. Um, he's talking about a giant and a fairy tale and a prince and he says if he's afraid of the giants there's an end of him but also if he's not astonished at the giant there's an end of the fairy tale the whole point depends on his being at once humble enough to wonder and haughty enough to defy he's making the argument now that there has to be two things for us to accomplish anything that is, we have to be satisfied enough with something um, to be dissatisfied, to know that there's something more we can do. Because if we're just satisfied, what happens? We sink into stagnation. We just don't do anything. Thus then is our second requirement for the ideal of progress. First, it must be fixed. Second, it must be composite. It must not be the mere victory of some one thing swallowing up everything else, love or pride or peace or adventure. It must be a definite picture composed of these elements in their best proportions and relation. I'm not concerned at this moment to deny that some good culmination may be by the constitution of things reserved for the human race. I only point out that if this composite happiness is fixed for us, it, miss, it must be fixed by some mind. For only a mind can place the exact proportion of composite happiness. Hold on. We've talked about that with Aristotle's notion of a mean. Oh, here's Mark. God. Oh, God, it's just, I think I, I hit an X. God bless. Mark, come back. Damn it. Sorry. Um, remember, here, remember what Aristotle said that all virtue is a means between two extremes, right? So, and let me go back to that for a minute because it's a really good example, I'd say. Um, courage is the virtue we call on when we're facing a danger, right? The rash man will face it rashly at an extreme. And the courageous man will face it the way Chesterton talked about it. He will... He will put his life at, willing to put his life at risk in order to save it. Right? Now, how does, how does the rash man view the virtuous man? The man who does what he should do. How does, how does the rash man view the virtuous man? Mark, your camera's not on. Your, I see your, your I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here, by the way, and I hope you can I'm, hear. I, I'm sorry I'm late. I no, no. left work. I'm eating. So no, my camera's no on. good. I'm just glad to see you. I've, I've actually met you a couple of times because we've been dealing with Chesterton and going over points that I know you'd enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, how does the rash man view the virtuous man? How does the, coward, how does the coward the view man. the virtuous man, the courageous man? Let's take the rash man first. That's right, Doc. How does the rash man view the courageous man? Wait a minute. Let's see where are we Isn't he going to look at him as a coward? He doesn't understand virtue. How does the cowardly man look at the courageous man? Is he going to see him as being rash? Because he's cowardly. 
It's only the virtuous man who knows the difference between the two. It's a Christ would have known. A virtuous Thomas More would have known. Now my point of bringing this up is this. It is the proportion between those extremes and the mean the same for every human being? No, it's not. There's some people who are more inclined to be brave. There's some people who are more inclined to be something else. To find that proportion is going to vary for every person. If a parent's raising kids and they're all different, the problem of, of helping one kid to be brave is not going to be the same as it is for another kid, right? Kids are different. Some kids are shyer. Some kids are more, more naturally courteous, you know, less ready to confront. Or So the, the, pro the task of <coughs> helping the kids to be virtuous can't be easy. What Chesterton is saying here is what's at issue is this proportion. It is not a balance. That's what it was for the Stoic. I only point out this composite happiness is fixed for us. It must be fixed by some mind, for only a mind can place the exact proportions of a composite happiness. Only a god would know what the proportion would be. A poet who's writing a poem. Look at T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Only a really good poet would know the proportion of those lines, the metrical pace, the, the arrangement of the words, the sounds of the music. Right? Only a good doctor, and there's, you know how skeptical I am about them, only a good doctor would know exactly what to do under the right circumstances if he's performing heart surgery. Not all of them will. So, the, um, the end must be fixed, and it must be composite. It's always a matter of balancing or finding the proportion between two things, the exact way they should relate in order to make this thing better. Because remember, the issue is here, how do we, how do we make a thing better? Let me, he adds the third thing that's needed. He says there are three things. First, to make something better. First, there must be an ideal or a goal that's fixed. If you're living in a house, the rules have to be fixed. There has to be a fixed goal. Charity or courtesy has to be a standard, let's say. Courage or whatever, you know. It must be composite. It has to be an ideal fixed by the mind because it's a combination of putting things in their proportion the way they should relate to each other. It, it has to bring two things together at once. Somebody must be humble enough to wonder and haughty enough, proud enough to defy. He has to be humble enough to wonder about... I mean, I think about kids today, particularly in a classroom. I, this is not a small thing for me, as you could imagine. How do you teach a kid to be humble enough in a classroom to wonder? Teacher raises a problem about race theory. You want him to be humble enough to wonder, to question, and have enough conviction to stand up and answer something. If you lose either one of those, you're going to lose 
you're not going to make things better. You're going to make them worse. If he just stands in wonder and doesn't do anything, it's lost. If he just defies without a spirit of humility, he's just going to create a violence. How do you bring both things together to make things better? Let me stop. Um, the last thing he said is that's needed is a watchfulness. At the very end, um, and he actually, he, it's interesting that he puts it in terms of socialism and the effect of socialism on democracy. And he is actually making the argument that, uh, that can anybody make it here? Do you, I would love to see just, he's making the argument that the, um, that generally socialism declines into aristocracy. And in the pay two, three pages, three pages into the end, he said, aristocracy is not an institution. Aristocracy is a sin, generally a very venial one. It's merely the drift or slide of men into a sort of natural pomposity and praise of the powerful. We're back in Plato. What's justice? It's the stronger over the weaker. Um, why is watchfulness necessary in order to make something better? What's his argument here? What's his concern? What's he saying? So three things. An ideal has to be fixed. It has to be composite. There has to be a, a putting into proportion of two things to help offset each other. And there has to be a watchfulness. Why a watchfulness? To me, the watchfulness is the method by which you achieve improvement. And you can, if you have the other two components, if you have the ability to, you know, believe or, or to identify areas where there are improvement, you have the courage to try to achieve that improvement, you can only gain that by watchfulness or gain the, 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 the vision of the opportunity. And for me, the problem with socialism is it, des it destroys both of those components. Why, Fred? Well, because in, in, in a socialist, basically you're, create, you're creating complete mediocrity. Everything is the same. Everybody is of one mind and believes whatever the the people who are the leaders of that structure are putting out there for you. you, you and, and you lose you lose the ability to listen to that and say, no, wait a minute, that's that's not aligned with my um, still point. That, that fundamental yeah. guiding yeah. light that I am using watchfulness for to be humble enough to identify where that improvement is and then courageous enough to move in that, to change and to move in that direction. And socialism destroys that whole construct. And that's why it leads to aristocracy. And that's right. exactly why right. the... Right. the the leadership that is focused on achieving socialism is trying to do. 
because I mean, you look out over history, and every single occasion where socialism eventually occurs, there is ultimately an aristocracy that's pulling all of the puppet right. strings. Right. Right. Eventually, and that and that group eventually gets to the point where it it can't make improvements. It no longer has the ability to do that. And nothing can ever change that outside of revolution. Yeah. By the way, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because you're right. There's one thing I want to add, but I want to I want to get every anybody else in here. But just on that point, I want to be clear. I want everybody to be clear. This Chesterton's using the word aristocracy, but he's doing it humorously, like he does so many other things. He he means it because it's real, but you could substitute for aristocracy um, controllers or conditioners, those who are in the know. They're the ones who know. Because every socialism rests on a group of people who think they're the ones who know what should govern everybody else, so you follow them. So I just I want to be really clear here. Chesterton's being facetious, but by aristocracy he means that, that group of people who think they're better than other people and who can tell everybody what they're to do to have this socialistic country. That's the first thing. The second is... Um, all aristocracies fail. I mean, Fred implied it, but I want to make sure we get there. Because within that aristocracy, because there are people, most people are proud and arrogant. They think they have the answers. What's going to happen among those aristocrats, those controllers? They're going to argue among themselves. Somebody's, there's going to be power plays. And at some point, that aristocracy is going to decline into a tyranny. Dictatorship. Right. So even though you, I mean, because he's because he's partly trying. I mean, you know that one of his loves is tradition and democracy. That he's aware of the modern world and these tendencies that move towards these easier ways of doing things. The political system that describes that condition is socialism. But he's clear here that the danger for that is an aristocracy. By that he doesn't mean because aristocracy, strictly meaning in the classical sense, is. The rule of the noble, the, 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 the honorable, the, those who are the few good ones. So that's what it means classically. Chesterton's use of it is different. What he means by that is a group of people who think they're better than others, um, who are actually controllers. And the ultimate outcome of that aristocracy over time will be a tyranny, a dictatorship. Um... I had one of, but wait, let me stop. Any other thoughts on um, why watchfulness is important for any improvement to take place? That's his third condition to be watchful. There's Chesterton. Chesterton's pretty clear. I think it's actually the opposite of what Marx said, although Mark, I mean uh, Fred, but. Um, but I think Fred's right on. I mean, if, if you're going to if you're going to improve things, you have to monitor them. You have to know whether things are getting better or not. You have to be watchful. The church's words, be, be awake, be vigilant. That's the church. But Chesterton's argument rests on a different assumption. Why, why do we have to be watchful? What's the opposite of improvement? Decay. Decay, yeah. Chesterton. Uh, so go, go ahead, anybody. Anybody, go ahead. 
I'm trying to figure out where you're at in the book, and I'm thinking we're in the, we're two pages from the end of the Eternal Revolution, Mark. Three pages. Okay, four, okay that's what. Okay. Um, three or four or five pages to the end. I, I think so much about his watchfulness comment to me is about self-reflection almost. Yes, you're watching the world, you're watching other things, but it's how you interpret them and you see and you judge and you say, oh, I'm right here or I'm wrong there, because the whole book is him making all these arguments. And if you don't pay attention or watch, you couldn't make any of these, because they're all observations. Yeah, yeah. And to me it was more for him... You have to watch the world. You have to watch what's going on, but you have to also watch yourself, and you know, and 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 understand and try and understand as best you can. And you can't understand any of these arguments without being watchful, attentive. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, you, you can't. At least that's the way I saw it. Anyway. Well, hell, I, yeah. I'm trying to watch him, and I still don't understand. <laughs> no, I I don't. I think you are, Barb. Barbara, did you have? Were you going to say something? No. No. Don't think so. About six pages in from the end, or so, yeah, six pages, he says, he's speaking about the startling swiftness with which popular systems turn oppressive is the third fact. Um, I mean, following out what we've been, the, the line of thinking that, that Fred introduced, you know, that um, you've, if you're going to improve, you have to monitor, you have to watch where you go. Um, but um, so six or seven pages in, he says, the, I want to get to the point that I, but I want to get there directly here. He says, corruption is things is not only the best argument for being progressive, it's also the only argument against being conservative. The conservative theory would really be quite sweeping and unanswerable if it were not for this one fact. All conservatism is based upon the idea if you leave things alone, you leave them as they are. But you do not. If you leave a thing alone, you leave it to a torrent of change. I love this. If you leave a white post alone, it will soon be a black post. If you particularly want it to be white, you must always be painting it. That is, you must always be having a revolution. Briefly, if you want the old white post, you must have a new white post. But this which is true even of inanimate things is a quite special and terrible sense true of all human things. An almost unnatural vigilance is really required of the citizens because the horrible rapidity with which human institutions grow old. I want to put this in, in, in human, individual terms now. He's talking about institutions, but he's talking about us as well. What's the common habit for all of us in the church that the church wants us to answer? The church's word for it is backsliding. <laughs> That's um, our tendency is to constantly slip back, like the post. If we leave the post alone, if we ignore ourselves, I mean to go to Mark's and, and, and Fred's point, if we don't, if we're not vigilant, if we don't watch it, um, the danger is it will fall back. He says this. This is about seven pages from the end. Christianity spoke again to this problem because of the way in which institutions tend to corrupt themselves. Look at America in comparison with America 150 years ago. To take an obvious example. Christianity spoke again to this problem of things corrupting 
I've always maintained that men were naturally backsliders, that human virtue tended of its own nature to rust or to rot. I've always said that human beings as such go wrong, especially happy human beings, especially proud and prosperous human beings. Is that not so? The happier you are, the more content you are. I mean, this is, he's been making this argument in a dozen different ways. This eternal revolution, the suspicion sustained through centuries, you, be, you called the doctrine of progress. That is, believe in that notion, all things are progressing. What reason do you have for doing anything? It's gonna, we've, he's already made that point. It's going to happen. It's a temptation to inertness or laziness. Do nothing. The church says be vigilant because it knows if we're left to ourselves or weak because all things are going to progress, which is a modern notion, we're going to fall back. The eternal revolution, the suspicion sustained through centuries, called the doctrine of progress. If you were a philosopher, you would call, as it I do, the doctrine of original sin. You may call it a cosmic advance as much as you like. I call it what it is, the fall. The tendency of the fall is that all things will decline. They decay. That's true of all physical things. It's not less true of us as human beings. If we're left alone, our inclination is to slip back. So what's the answer to that? To be alert, to be awake, to watch. We are in a fall. Now let me go back. How many people today believing in evolution or progress are going to take those words seriously? How many people today are watchful because they have any sense that they're inclined to sin or that we're in a fall or that things tend towards corruption? I mean, my, my sort of impression of the general culture is that people are alcoholic about work, they're obsessive about work, and on the weekends they go out and drink. And have sex. Watchfulness? <laughs> That's for these crazy people who have religious beliefs. Who So there are three things in order for there to be any improvement. For us to get better at anything, there are these three things. That an ideal must be fixed, that it must be composite, and that we must be watchful. We have to take watchfulness seriously. Let me stop here. I want to I want to take a minute and just set out a couple of thoughts of orthodoxy because we don't have time to go into it. But um, any comments about um, the eternal revolution? Why is it? Why is the chapter called eternal eternal revolution? He's so good with words. Why is it called eternal revolution? I remember it he talks a little bit about um, at least earlier um, in that chapter about not uh, well he, he brought it up here about the conservative and the and the liberal and, and what it means to be both but it, it just I guess have it I had underlined in my book, anyway, the what, what, the bottom half of what you just talked about, okay, and I and I went up and reread as you were reading it, but it is very much about having to continue 
to be vigilant and continue to try, otherwise you're going to be stagnant. You have to keep keep at it. Um, otherwise, you fall into one of those two camps. Right? Mm-hmm. If you don't keep moving forward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, at least that that's what yeah. got for me. Yeah. Go ahead, Fred. Did you have a thought? You were going to say something. Uh, why why the title Eternal Eternal Revolution? Mark just said, but I, I I think I think two things. Number one is I think whether progression is positive or not depends on whether the one being progressive has that that still point, that one thing constant that they're progressing toward. I, I think it's called the eternal revolution because I, I think mankind is never going to achieve perfection in, in this world. And so all we can hope to do is continually get better and closer to what, what God ultimately wants us to. To achieve, and if we don't, if we don't look at it as being eternal, then we are going to backslide. But if we do look at it as eternal, I think we can continue to make progress, continue to get better. Um, we'll continue to maintain that humility because the harder you try, the more you realize <laughs> what's left for you to do. Yes, yes. And if you maintain the courage to continue knowing that you're never really going to get there in this world, but this world is not your final destination. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of a better thing to call it than eternal revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's fixed, because it's a fixed point, it means that every point in our life we're constantly changing, or should be, to reach that end. So it's, as Fred described, it's ongoing. It's constantly ongoing. If we, If we... If we give in to all these modern, and it's really interesting, he makes this, I think he he makes the point so well in The Romance of Orthodoxy. He describes all these modern thoughts as they present themselves. They all see themselves as liberal, as freeing man. All of them present themselves as working in the interest of freedom, of making man more liberal, more free. And Chester makes the point that every every one of those doctrines presented as a liberal doc- doctrine actually oppresses, imprisons man, takes away his liberties. If you don't have that eternal goal, if you if you don't have that still point or a God that's unchanging, you'll constantly be giving in to things as they change and losing your direction, not getting there, changing your paths. But if the eternal revolution really is it, I mean, I, I, I'm just agreeing with Fred that the, the phrase is a perfect one because if that goal is fixed, it means our whole life should be a constant series of conversions. We should be constantly getting better. Um, that's our church. Think about how different that is for a Calvinist or a Lutheran. Um, that's why for Chesterton, one of the reasons he loves Catholicism is because he says it's the only place in which there's any real sense of romance or adventure. There's a danger for us all the time. There's a story going on. All, I mean, as, as much as some of you, I'm looking at you, Mark, 
some of you may have trouble with poetry or, you know, poetry and stories are in some sense the, it's an affirmation of what's great about us because all of us are constantly involved in a story. There's something ongoing, it's open-ended, we don't know the end, there's always a drama, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, take that away because of a belief in necessity or determinism or inevitability or, you know, you do anything to undercut man's free will and you undercut romance and adventure. Um, so it's a, it's a perfect title, I think, to the chapter. Um, Bob, when you say fixed point, expound upon that a little bit. Well, Chesterton, he, it's the word he uses, Mark, several times. He says, here, let me, let me answer it with him and try to add to it, to and try to answer your question, because it's a good one. Um, wait. This, therefore, is our first requirement about which the ideal towards which progress is directed. It must be fixed. He makes the argument in, in that, that whole section of that chapter that if your ideal of progress keeps shifting, you'll never get anywhere. Because in one moment you'll be heading this way, the next you'll be heading this way. If you think the town should be blue and you paint it blue and then you change your mind and you think it should be pink, you'll paint it, you know. In order to make any progress, you have to have a fixed target so you can progress towards it. Otherwise, there's no progress possible. So, but it's interesting, throughout most of that, he's just using that as an intellectual notion. It's a fixed point. But clearly he means God. If you take God away, if you take an eternal end away that's fixed, it is eternal, he's there, then, then you get lost. You're, you're chasing after gods in different directions and going nowhere. So, okay, so, so what you're saying is that the fixed point is God. He doesn't say that, but, it, but at some point he makes it clear. That's why he calls it the eternal revolution, that that there has to be something that in itself is lasting and fixed. We were, we were using the, the term, Mark, um, before you got here, because we started out by reading the... Uh, we were, by the way, Mark, we're going to do the, um, the four quartets, Eliot's quartets again. And I was making the point that, that the still point notion is so important to that whole thing. Boethius, remember, said that he used the image of the circle, and he says the still point is that point that's unmoving, it's fixed, mm -hmm. it's not changing. I thought Fred did a beautiful job a while ago. Be I, I'm, Fred, correct me here, but the point that he was making is that if you take away that, fi that fixed point, it's not itself fixed, then the wheel will get lopsided. I mean, it'll just flatten out or curve or, you know, everything about that wheel operating depends on that point being there. If it changes, the wheel gets out of order and so the fixed point, the still point for Boethius is an image of that pre ongoing present, that eternal present. This is from uh, Consolation, the, 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 work, the work that we read. That, that still point is an image of God's present, which is unchanging in eternity. And it's that, you know, the closer you get to that, the, the, the closer you get to seeing things the way he did. That was his argument in the consolation. Chesterton's not referring to Boethius. He doesn't use still point. He, he uses the, he's using the term fixed point because he's, what he's doing is, is really what he's doing is taking, 
He's taking on the modern world in its own terms. And the major lines of thought that he's taking on are progress, that all things are progressing, or evolution, that all things are moving towards something we don't know what. And he's saying, none of these things are going to help us get better. <coughs> they all ultimately undermine us. To make any progress at all, we have to have a fixed target, a fixed point. <coughs> Did that answer your question, Mark? The one thing I wanted to say, we're running, we've run out of time, but in Romance of Orthodoxy, I'm just repeating what I said a minute ago, he's taking up the major lines of thought again. He's been doing that in chapter after cha chapter. Idealism, materialism, progression, um, moral rhetoric, moralism, monism, pantheism, um, he spends a lot of time on the differences between Buddhism and Christ. Necessity. He takes on Arianism from Arian, the early church theologian who presented the argument that um, Christ was man. You know, Chesterton takes... Those will be the subjects of romance, of orthodoxy. <coughs> and what he's arguing is that every one of these positions presents itself as being liberal that its end is to free man. And he's really good at showing every one of those positions has the opposite effect, that it, as a matter of fact, it takes away man's freedom. The, a, a better way, they're all inhuman. They're anti-humanist doctrines. They're not humanist. They present themselves as being very humanist. He's arguing that every one of them is anti-humanist, illiberal. They work to undermine our freedoms. So it's an important chapter. We're getting close to the end. Um, but read book 8 or chapter 8, and we'll see if we can't get through 8 and 9 next week. If, um, if we do, we'll finish the book. If we don't, we'll have one more week in, in which to finish orthodoxy. Any comments or questions about anything we've done or what Chesterton's saying or the amazing thing Mark you were you you didn't get in on this but the amazing thing is he's I'm just repeating what I've said before he's everything he's I thought you put it well earlier really well when you said he's making all of these observations based on you know experiences in the world he's making no appeals to faith or if he does it's very brief and indirect and he's usually doing it to defend reason that reason is an act of faith and he's, he's not being catechetical at all, but he's showing the amazing powers of reason in the natural world to pick out all this good, that there are tremendous sources of rationality in nature. There's an awful lot we can learn about ourselves through our powers of reason, but to do that means cutting through the tangle of all the many ways in which the modern mind uses reason um, to confuse or um, leave us with the belief uh, that reason's bad. I mean, it's really interesting that he's, he's taking on Calvin indirectly. He, he names Calvin a couple of times, but the theories of predestination, necessity, evolution. I mean, if you look at people like Luther or Calvin, you're watching men 
whose theologies rest on rational arguments based on these things. Predestination, predestination, the irresistible power of God can't be resisted. It's going to be that way. It's the way it is. We're watching all these things in the natural order presented as the way things are. Chesterton's taking them on, using reason. He's just, he's amazing in what he's doing, I think. Great gift to us, great gift to us. Mark, your mom and dad okay? Uh, yes, they're doing better. Good. Uh, dad's oxygen level, is, he's still using oxygen a little bit, um, but he's getting much, much better. Good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Any, any last thoughts or comments, Barbara? No, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> I'll write you a note. <laughs> you don't have, you don't have much have to resist teasing you. You are such a joy to me. God, it just. <laughs> it it is. I mean, just it's just it it comes too easily to me. I I have to really work at restraining myself. It's Fred. No comments. Francis. We're good. Okay. You guys be safe this week. Um, genuinely, take care. There. This COVID thing is at our doors. The political disorders are at our doors. So you guys be tough. You guys, you are as a group. You guys are really tough. Take Chesterton to heart. Use him well, okay? You guys have a good week, and I'll see you next week. And by the way, you might, no, not all of you guys pick up the four quartets. Mark, <laughs> pick up the four. Mark, read the four quartets. And, 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 where, and where you don't understand it, just be glad, some, be patient, and just know that Eliot himself said, you don't even want to try to understand poetry the first time. You just let the thing have its way and because it'll talk to you at other levels. So anyway, read the four quartets, you guys. See you next week. All right. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night, Tom.